Welcome everybody to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The issue we're analyzing today is polio. Technically, the disease is actually called poliomyelitis. But over the years, people have just shortened it to polio. Polio was one of the scourges of the 20th century. There were certainly diseases that were killing more people, most notably cancer. But polio really put the fear into everybody for two reasons. Number one, a high percentage of the people afflicted with the disease were children. That's why it was often referred to as infantile paralysis, because it struck kids a lot more than adults. Number two, it came on so suddenly. A person contracted polio and suffered terribly for several days and then sometimes simply died or were left permanently disabled. In this episode, we're going to cover a brief history of polio, particularly in the United States. I'm mostly going to cover polio in America because I could find more information about polio here much more easily. And also, the epidemic here in the U.S. was very similar to other developed countries. We're also going to discuss a true hero, Jonas Salk. And I mean it when I say hero. Nowadays, that term has become so diluted. Sports stars are not heroes. Movie stars and celebrities are not heroes. Real heroes save lives, often at a risk to their own lives. An easy example were those firefighters and police officers in New York City on September 11, 2001, who were running into the World Trade Center as everybody else was trying to get away. As I'll explain in detail later, Jonas Salk was an actual hero. Dr. Salk developed a vaccine which saved countless lives and spared even more people from suffering the debilitating effects of polio. And here is the kicker. Jonas Salk never patented the vaccine or earned any money from his discovery. He wanted the vaccine to be distributed as widely as possible around the world. We all like to think we would be so altruistic and turn down incredible financial rewards for the good of mankind. But in reality, how many people would really do that? Also in this episode, we're going to be discussing the most famous polio victim of all time, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, commonly referred to by his initials, FDR. I'm not going to go into his incredible political career, especially the 12 years as president, during two of the three greatest crises in American history, the Great Depression and World War II. Of course, the third of the great crises was the American Civil War. In this episode, I just want to discuss the effects of polio on Franklin Roosevelt and, in turn, FDR's contributions in the fight against this horrible disease. The goal of so many medical researchers is to eradicate a disease. What does that mean? That means to completely eliminate a particular disease. Do you know how many diseases have been completely eliminated in the world? According to the World Health Organization, the WHO, there is only one infectious disease in humans that has been eradicated, and that is smallpox. As a side note, one other disease has been officially extinguished. It's called rinderpest, but it's not a human disease. It was a plague that affected cattle and buffalo. It was declared eradicated in 2011. The smallpox vaccine was created in 1796 by Edward Jenner. According to the WHO, it was the first successful vaccine to be developed. 
Smallpox is believed to have existed for approximately 3,000 years. It was a true curse on humanity. A famous and tragic example of the ravages of smallpox was when Europeans came to the Americas after Columbus's first voyage to the Western Hemisphere in 1492. There were many European diseases which killed the Native Americans, including measles and influenza. But by far the biggest killer was smallpox. The natives in the Americas had no immunity to these European diseases. It is estimated that in just one year, 1520, 40% of the Aztec population died from smallpox. As horrendous as that 40% figure is, consider this. European diseases eventually wiped out approximately 90% of the Native Americans throughout the Western Hemisphere. We don't know which diseases killed how many, but it is believed that smallpox was the primary killer of the natives in the Americas. You can see what an incredible achievement that was to abolish smallpox. Smallpox was declared eradicated by the World Health Organization in 1980. The International Task Force for Disease Eradication was formed in 1988. That organization lists seven other diseases that humanity is close to eliminating from the world. I never heard of the first three. Number one, lymphatic filariasis. According to the World Health Organization, that disease impairs the lymphatic system and can lead to the abnormal enlargement of body parts, causing pain and severe disability. Number two, cystocercosis. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, cystocercosis is a parasitic tissue infection caused by the larval cysts of the tapeworm. Sounds horrible. Number three, guinea worm disease. According to the CDC, guinea worm disease is caused by a parasite. The disease affects poor communities in remote parts of Africa that do not have safe water to drink. There's neither a drug treatment for guinea worm disease nor a vaccine to prevent it. Great progress has been made towards the elimination of guinea worm disease. The number of human cases annually has fallen from 3.5 million in the mid-1980s to 15 in 2021. The next three diseases that humanity is close to completely eliminating are more well-known. Mumps, measles, and rubella which used to be called German measles, at least when I was a little kid in the 1960s. Mumps, measles, and rubella could all be wiped out if enough people in the world can be given and are willing to take the vaccines for those three diseases. The seventh disease, which is on the list for a possible eradication, is polio. So what is polio? Before I go any further, I have to tell you, I have no expertise in medicine. My degrees are in history and law. On medical issues, I can only tell you what I've read. According to the Mayo Clinic website, polio is an illness caused by a virus that mainly affects nerves in the spinal cord or brainstem. In its most severe form, polio can lead to a person being unable to move certain limbs, also called paralysis. It can also lead to trouble breathing and sometimes death. It mainly targets nerve cells in the spinal cord and brainstem that control muscle movement. Nerve cells controlling sensation 
are generally not affected. In plain language, a person struck with polio sometimes fully recovers, sometimes dies, and in the paralytic state, the patient loses the ability to move some of their muscles. And to add to the cruelty, even in parts of their body that they cannot move, the polio victim can still feel pain. Unfortunately, there is still no cure for paralytic polio. How do people contract polio? Again, according to the Mayo Clinic website, people carrying the polio virus, even people who don't get sick, can pass along the virus in feces, also called stool, or droplets from sneezing or coughing. The virus enters another person through the mouth. The virus can spread easily. For example, the virus can spread if people haven't washed their hands after coughing, using the toilet, or before eating. The virus also may be in water contaminated with feces carrying the polio virus. Contaminated water was a big problem in the United States. It's one of the reasons why polio had a season, which was summer. When an outbreak occurred in a particular town, municipal pools would be closed and people would be told not to swim in local ponds or lakes. My mother-in-law grew up in rural Michigan and never learned to swim because her parents would not allow her to go into any of the local lakes or ponds for fear of contracting polio. And now for a brief history of polio. We think polio existed in ancient Egypt. Ancient Egyptian images show children walking with canes with withered limbs characteristic of the disease. The first famous person that we know of that had polio was Sir Walter Scott. In case you're not familiar with him, he was a famous writer from Scotland, mostly in the early 1800s. His writings include the novels Ivanhoe and Rob Roy. Scott had polio when he was only one and a half years old. That would be in 1773. As a result, his right leg was permanently lame. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the first description of infantile paralysis, or polio, occurred in 1789 by a British doctor named Michael Underwood. The first big outbreak in the U.S. occurred in 1894 in Vermont. In the first half of the 20th century, developed countries suffered increasingly severe epidemics of polio. It took a long time before they realized why polio was more common in developed countries. Although it sounds counterintuitive, it was because of the increased levels of hygiene. This is because babies were born with immunity from their mothers but the immunity did not last very long. In less developed countries, babies were exposed to polio when they still had this immunity, which they had received from their mothers. By being exposed to polio when they still had the immunity from their mothers, the children developed their own lifelong immunity to polio. The problem with the higher levels of sanitary conditions in developed countries meant that babies were not being exposed to polio nearly as often. These children were first being exposed to polio at later ages when they no longer had the immunity from their mothers. In 1916, there was one of the worst polio epidemics in American history. Approximately 27,000 people along the east coast of the U.S. were infected with polio. New York was especially hard hit. There were 19,000 polio cases in New York City alone. Almost 2,500 of those polio infections resulted in death. In one week alone, 
In August 1916 in New York City, there were 1,151 cases of polio and 301 deaths. Wealthy people sent their children out of the city to avoid the epidemic. At the time, people incorrectly thought that cats and dogs might have been carriers of the disease. As a result, thousands of stray cats and dogs in New York City were rounded up and killed. In 1952, there were 57,879 cases of polio reported in the United States. More than 21,000 were paralytic cases. And by paralytic cases, that meant people suffering from paralysis, the loss of the ability to move parts of their body. And in that year, there were 3,145 deaths from polio in the U.S. One of the most dreaded outcomes from contracting polio was being placed in an iron lung. This device was known by other names, cabinet respirator, tank respirator, negative pressure ventilator, and others but it was almost universally known as an iron lung. When most of us think of polio, we usually picture people in wheelchairs with braces on their legs, but polio could affect different parts of the body. Sometimes polio paralyzed muscles in the chest. As a result, those poor patients could not breathe. Most patients would recover the ability to breathe, meaning their muscle strength would return, if they could just survive the initial critical phase. So, using technology from the 1920s and 30s, how could doctors keep these people breathing for the one to two weeks that they needed to recover their muscle function? The iron lung was invented in 1927 at the Harvard School of Public Health by Philip Drinker and Louis Agassiz Shaw. It was first used on a patient in 1928. You may have seen them in movies set in the Great Depression. An iron lung looked like a metal casket. It was essentially shaped like a cylinder. It was an airtight chamber, approximately seven feet or a little over two meters long. Contrary to its name, it was usually made out of steel, not iron. The patient would be placed in the iron lung with their head sticking out of one end. The rest of their body would be contained in the metal chamber. A rubber collar was placed around the person's neck to keep the iron lung sealed creating a vacuum. The patient was lying on their back with their face up. There would be a mirror above the patient's face so they could communicate more easily with other people. The iron lung would force the patient's lungs to breathe. An air pump was attached to the other end of the iron lung. Air pressure would be sucked out of the chamber, creating negative pressure, causing the patient's chest to expand and filling the lungs with oxygen. Then, air would be pumped back into the metal chamber, creating positive pressure, causing the lungs to deflate, meaning that the patient would exhale. Obviously, the air was going in and out of the patient's mouth or nose. A motor would keep the air pump operating. These were expensive devices, costing somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, you could buy a house for those amounts. One of the questions I had was, how did people go to the bathroom if they were in an iron lung? I finally found an answer online, supposedly from a doctor, who said that there were side hatches that could be opened and an attendant 
could place a bedpan under the patient and then remove the bedpan later on. These side hatches were also used for changing the clothes of the patient and changing the sheets on the mattress the patient was lying on. The iron lung was actually a fairly simple process, but it had to be a terrible ordeal and it had to be frightening. Can you imagine being placed in this large metal coffin with only your head sticking out? You can't move. You are completely relying on people around you to keep you alive. And if the motor stopped working, you stopped breathing and would quickly die. The lucky patients were the ones who, after a week or two, the polio subsided and they could breathe on their own again. But there were others who faced the ghastly existence of having to live the rest of their lives in an iron lung. It's now time to talk about the most famous victim of polio ever. Of course, that would be President Franklin Roosevelt. Before I discuss FDR's battle with polio, I have to explain that there are some in the medical community that believe he might not have had polio, but instead had Guillain-Barre syndrome. A doctor named Armand Goldman of the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston published a report in the November 2003 issue of the Journal of Medical Biography claiming that FDR's symptoms were more likely to be Guillain-Barre syndrome. It does not appear that there is any way to definitively determine FDR's illness since the man has been dead since 1945. I do not know if a survey has been done in the medical profession. I looked for one but could not find one. But from what I have seen and read, it appears that most medical experts still believe that Franklin Roosevelt suffered from polio. I am proceeding on the assumption that FDR did have polio. And just as important for today's episode, Roosevelt and everybody at the time believed that he had polio. The reason that is significant is because of Roosevelt's actions and his support of trying to find a cure or a vaccine for polio. Most people, when they think of Franklin Roosevelt, they think of a guy whose legs were paralyzed. But he did not contract polio until 1921 when he was 39 years old. Before that time, he was a very athletic man. Roosevelt was six foot two inches tall and had a very athletic build. He was considered attractive. He enjoyed sailing, horseback riding, fishing, and playing golf and tennis. Today, nobody pictures him that way. We all just think of that guy in the wheelchair. Before he contracted polio in 1921, FDR was a rising political star. During World War I, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy. In 1920, Roosevelt was the Democratic nominee for vice president. In that election, the Republican ticket of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge easily destroyed the Democratic ticket of James Cox and FDR. By the way, in that 1920 election, Roosevelt was only 38 years old. The minimum age to be president or vice president is 35 years old. So 38 was very young to be running for vice president. Now I know you're dying to know who was the youngest vice president in American history. That would be John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky. He was only 36 years old when he took office as the vice president under James Buchanan, one of the worst presidents in American history. Buchanan was Abraham Lincoln's predecessor and did nothing as seven southern states seceded and formed the Confederacy. Buchanan took the position that it wasn't his problem. Lincoln could deal with it. 
Here are a few interesting facts about John C. Breckinridge in addition to being the youngest vice president in American history. Number one, in 1860, he ran for president against Abraham Lincoln and two other candidates. Breckinridge carried most of the slave states. Fortunately for the United States and the world, Lincoln won the election. Number two, in the Civil War, Breckinridge was a general in the Confederate Army. In the last few months of the war, Breckinridge served as the Secretary of War for the Confederacy. And number three, the fact that I find most interesting is that John C. Breckinridge was a distant cousin of Mary Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's wife. And at the risk of going completely down this rabbit hole, here's an interesting tidbit about Mary Todd Lincoln and the election of 1860. Four candidates got electoral votes. Mary had no connection to one of the candidates, John Bell, but she was connected to the other three. She was married to Abraham Lincoln, and as I told you, she was a distant cousin of John C. Breckinridge, and she had briefly courted, to use the term from the 1800s, the fourth candidate, Stephen Douglas. All right, let's get back to FDR. In 1921, a year after he was beaten in that landslide when he ran for vice president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt was vacationing on Campobello Island. That's a small island which belongs to the Canadian province of New Brunswick. It's not far from the coast of Maine. Nowadays, that island is the home of Roosevelt Campobello International Park. In the 1920s, FDR and his wife Eleanor had a summer vacation home on Campobello Island. FDR had been spending summer vacations there since he was a child. Roosevelt engaged in a lot of physical activities with his family at Campobello, generally enjoying the great outdoors. On August 10, 1921, Roosevelt spent an active day on Campobello Island, including swimming and sailing. That night, he felt sick. He had chills and lower back pain. He skipped dinner and went to bed early. The next morning, Roosevelt knew that something was seriously wrong. He woke up with a fever of 102 and he could barely walk. One of his legs gave way underneath him as he tried to reach the bathroom. After that date, he would never walk again. He was only 39 years old. At first, nobody knew what was wrong with him. He was on a small vacation island. Doctors were called, but they did not know what was causing Roosevelt's problems. FDR's friend and political advisor, Lewis Howe, was with the Roosevelt's on Campobello Island. Howe contacted doctors in New York City about Roosevelt's condition. He was told that it might be polio. So Howe summoned a doctor from Boston who was considered the leading authority on polio at that time, Robert Williamson Lovett. When Dr. Lovett got to Campobello Island and examined Roosevelt, he confirmed FDR and Eleanor's worst fears. Yes, he had polio. This appeared to be the end of Roosevelt's political career. Today, somebody could certainly run for office with a physical disability, but in the 1920s, somebody with a physical handicap was supposed to stay out of sight. Forget politics, people thought that Roosevelt should just stay home and be a recluse. But FDR did not feel that way. He spent the next several years trying to recover from polio. Unfortunately, he never did recover. He was permanently paralyzed in both legs. For the rest of his life, Roosevelt would require a wheelchair. Roosevelt did not like the pre-made wheelchairs, so he created his own. He had wheels put on regular kitchen chairs, which were not as bulky. 
On October 3, 1924, Franklin Roosevelt visited Warm Springs, Georgia for the first time. He went there because the natural springs supposedly had healing properties. The spring water contained minerals and had a constant temperature of 88 degrees Fahrenheit, or 31 degrees for you Celsius types. There was a pool at the facility fed by the springs, and Roosevelt swam there every day for the next couple of weeks. The water and warm springs did not cure Roosevelt's polio, but he did enjoy swimming there and was able to kind of stand in the water. A magazine article covered his trip to warm springs. People with polio across the country read the story and some traveled to the Georgia town. Roosevelt decided to buy the facility. His mother and his wife were both very much against this purchase. Roosevelt paid $200,000 for the resort property. That was two-thirds of his net worth. He did not buy the facility for himself. In 1927, Roosevelt opened a polio therapeutic treatment center called the Georgia Warm Springs Foundation. This was a nonprofit foundation supplying treatment and care for polio patients. He continued to visit Warm Springs throughout the rest of his life. Polio patients from around the country came to Warm Springs. Whether the therapy treatments physically helped or not is certainly up for debate, but emotionally and psychologically, it was a great success. FDR thoroughly enjoyed being surrounded by other polio victims. He did not have to hide his disability. He could be himself. Roosevelt became a fixture in the community. He would drive throughout the area in a special car which was fitted with hand controls to operate the gas, brake, and clutch. FDR had a home built for himself at Warm Springs. During his more than 12 years as president, his home in Warm Springs was referred to as the Little White House. In fact, that is where Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945. Roosevelt was only 63 years old when he died. When you see pictures of him in the last year of his life, he looked more like he was 93 than 63. I know that he was a heavy smoker, and the pressure of being president really ages a person. Online, you can find plenty of photos showing a president when they took office compared to what they looked like when they left office. Roosevelt died of a cerebral hemorrhage, but I've always wondered if his polio added to his early death. I've tried to find an answer to this question, but have been unable to find anything. So I guess the answer is presumably no. However, Roosevelt probably suffered from post-polio syndrome. According to the Cedars-Sinai website, Post-polio syndrome is a disorder of the nerves and muscles. It happens in some people many years after they have had polio. PPS may cause new muscle weakness that gets worse over time, pain in the muscles and joints, and tiredness. People with PPS often feel exhausted. My totally untrained opinion on this medical issue is that the ravages of polio and post-polio syndrome might not have caused his death, but probably made FDR's physical condition worse. In 1924, Franklin Roosevelt made his first public appearance 
since being struck down by polio. At the Democratic National Convention held at Madison Square Garden in New York City, Roosevelt gave a speech nominating Al Smith for president. Roosevelt used crutches to get around at that convention. He had heavy braces on both of his legs. Those braces kept his legs locked in a straight position. Using the crutches and his tremendous upper body strength, he could somewhat ambulate, but it was clear he was not walking. People were happy to see FDR in public and happy to see that he was not in a wheelchair, but the appearance of Roosevelt using crutches confirmed the belief that he was disabled. Of course, he was disabled. He could not ambulate without leg braces and crutches. But seeing Roosevelt on crutches led the public at large to use a term that's now considered offensive. They referred to FDR as a cripple. I do not wish to offend anybody by using that word. I just want to point out that that's what people were calling Franklin Roosevelt at that time. And yes, they meant it in a derogatory fashion. After the 1924 Democratic Convention, Roosevelt stopped using crutches in public appearances. He developed a way of appearing to walk. He would have the leg braces locked so his legs would be kept in a straight position when he was standing up. Then he would use a cane in one hand while holding onto the arm of another person with his other hand. That other person had to be a strong man because Roosevelt was putting a lot of pressure on that person's arm. Using his cane and holding onto his companion, Roosevelt would swing his upper body to give the appearance of walking. He would first swing the right side of his body forward and then the left side of his body forward. He gave the appearance of a man who had difficulty walking but could do so with a cane, and people believed it. At the time, most people believed that he did not need a wheelchair or even crutches. Once Roosevelt got to a podium to give a speech, the companion, which was often his son, would leave him. Roosevelt would hold onto the podium with both hands so he would not fall. Preparation was always taken to make sure that the podium was securely fastened and could support Roosevelt's weight. We look back now and think it's ridiculous that Roosevelt had to hide his disability. But unfortunately, he was right. The way people viewed anybody with any type of disability back in the 1920s and 30s meant that he would have been considered unfit for office and never would have been elected governor of New York, let alone president of the United States. But because of his great deception, Roosevelt was elected governor in 1928 and re-elected in 1930. In 1932, Roosevelt was elected president. Roosevelt was re-elected three more times. Franklin Roosevelt is the only person elected president of the United States more than two times. That is a record he will certainly keep because of the 22nd Amendment to the United States Constitution. That amendment was ratified in 1951 and reads in pertinent part as follows. No person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice, and no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term to which some other person was elected president shall be elected to the office of the president more than once. But this article shall not apply to any person holding the office of president when this article was proposed by the Congress and shall not prevent any person who may be holding the office of president or acting as president during the term within which this article becomes operative from holding the office of president or acting as president during the remainder of such term.
Simply stated, the 22nd Amendment prevents anybody from being president for more than two terms. But you will note that there was an exception made for whoever was president when the 22nd Amendment was proposed by Congress. Since that was 1947, and the 22nd Amendment was later ratified in 1951, it was Harry Truman. Meaning that Truman could have run for president as much as he wanted, although it is very doubtful he could have been re-elected again in 1952. It is remarkable that FDR was the longest-serving president and most of the country did not realize that he was physically disabled. We don't have any surveys available, but at least one historian estimated that less than 5% of the country understood that Roosevelt was disabled. When you look at political cartoons of Roosevelt in the 1930s, during the New Deal era, when he was trying to get the country out of the Great Depression, you'll notice that the political cartoons all show him as an able-bodied man. In fact, most of those political cartoons show him as this vigorous man attacking the Great Depression. So how did Roosevelt keep this disability essentially secret from the public. Although his leg braces were originally a metallic silver color, Roosevelt had them painted black. He would wear black shoes and black socks so that the leg braces were not very visible. And he made sure that his pants legs were long to cover up the braces. FDR's team took precautions to avoid FDR having to appear to walk in public whenever possible. When he was campaigning, he gave a lot of speeches from the rear of a train. He was already standing on the platform on the rear of the train when they pulled into a town. Sometimes, if Roosevelt was going to give a short speech in a town, they would have a ramp built before he arrived. FDR would be sitting in the back of a convertible automobile, and the car would drive right up onto the ramp and he would give the speech from the back seat. Amazingly, the public did not question this. He was very popular, and it seemed that most of the public just wanted to go along with the charade. And even most of his political opponents thought that it was dirty pool to go after Roosevelt's physical ailments. When FDR was first running for president in 1932, his Republican opponent, Herbert Hoover, refused to make an issue about Roosevelt's health. But other Republicans did raise the issue with various people in the media. Roosevelt and his advisors responded to the questions about his health with an article in Liberty Magazine, which included details from an examination by a team of doctors who declared that FDR was physically fit to be president. And... Those doctors were certainly right. Just because the man could not walk did not mean he was not fit to be president. He was concealing his condition just because of the prejudice against the disabled at that time. As far as I am aware, there are only four known photographs showing Roosevelt in a wheelchair. So why aren't there more photos or even videos of Roosevelt either in a wheelchair or being lifted in or out of a car? The most common answer you hear is that there was a gentleman's agreement among the press. People taking still photographs and videos of Roosevelt would not show him being helped in and out of a car or any time when he was in a wheelchair or any other situation which made it clear that he was not truly able to walk. That gentleman's agreement is true, but only to an extent. There were photographers that captured Roosevelt in a wheelchair or in some other manner that made it clear he could not walk, in those instances, the Secret Service would confiscate the camera and remove the film 
and then return the camera to the photographer. So while it's true about there being this gentleman's agreement, it certainly helped when the Secret Service was available to enforce it if somebody did not comply. Today, practically everybody has a camera with them 24 hours a day because of smartphones. But I could not imagine the press and the media in the late 20th century, before smartphones, agreeing to not take compromising photos or videos of a president to cover up his disability. The 1930s and 40s were certainly a different time. Earlier I said that the doctors were right to declare Franklin Roosevelt physically fit to be president in 1932, but the doctors did cover up for FDR's physical condition in 1944. On March 28, 1944, Roosevelt received a complete physical, including a cardiac examination. The diagnosis was that FDR was suffering from hypertension, hypertensive heart disease, cardiac failure, left ventricle, and acute bronchitis. Roosevelt ran for a fourth presidential term that year. He was so popular, there was no doubt that he would win. But would people have voted for him if they had known about his serious physical condition? It was clear to people high up in the Democratic Party that Roosevelt was unlikely to live through a fourth term in office. This made the office of vice president even more important than usual. That's why the Democratic power brokers advised Roosevelt to dump Vice President Henry Wallace and replace him with Harry Truman in the 1944 campaign. I live in Los Angeles. In 2022, when I was visiting my mom in Connecticut, I took my 90-year-old mother to Franklin Roosevelt's home in Hyde Park, New York. The home was called Springwood. I would highly recommend it to anybody who is visiting the New York City area. Obviously, it is very wheelchair accessible. There is an elevator in the house which operates like a dumbwaiter. By that, I mean it is moved from floor to floor by pulling on ropes. When touring the house, I was advised that FDR did not want a mechanical elevator because he was afraid of possibly being stuck in the elevator if the motor broke down. Roosevelt liked to be able to pull himself in that elevator from floor to floor. He had a lot of upper body strength. The Hyde Park estate was transferred to the U.S. Department of the Interior as a National Historic Site in November 1945. When I took my mom to the Roosevelt home in 2022, it was actually her second visit to Hyde Park. My mother had previously been to the Roosevelt home on a field trip from Greenwich High School in 1948. So, it had been 74 years between my mom's two visits to the Roosevelt home. Some people think that polio made Franklin Roosevelt a better governor and president. Why was that? Because before 1921, Roosevelt was a man who had it all. He was tall, athletic, and good-looking. He went to Harvard. He was very wealthy and politically connected. He was living a life very few people could even dream of. Contracting polio in 1921 made FDR face a lot of harsh realities in life. He got to see, as the cliche goes, how the other half lives. How did people in America live who were disabled, poor, or in some other way disadvantaged? The theory is that his struggles with polio between 1921 and 1928, when he was elected governor of New York, made him more sympathetic to the plight of the poor, disabled, and downtrodden. 
Obviously, this is just a theory. We will never know if he continued to lead an extremely privileged and carefree life, whether he could have related to all of those people suffering during the Great Depression. But facing such obstacles gave Roosevelt an optimism and an ability to overcome scary situations. Some historians think that is why he said in his first presidential inaugural address about the Great Depression. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. One silver lining to the dark cloud of FDR having polio was the incredible amounts of money raised to fight the disease. Having such a public figure like the president suffering from a particular ailment makes it much easier to raise money. Even though Franklin Roosevelt took great lengths to hide his disability, practically everybody knew that he had suffered from polio. They just thought that he overcame it and could walk. In 1938, President Roosevelt founded a nonprofit organization called the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. Remember that infantile paralysis was the original common name for polio. That foundation soon became known as the March of Dimes. You may have heard of that charitable organization. The person who came up with that name was Eddie Cantor, a famous actor, dancer, and singer at the time. The name was a play on words for the newsreels that were playing in movie theaters in the 1930s called the March of Time. For those of you unfamiliar with American money, the 10 cent coin is commonly referred to as a dime. Fun fact, FDR's connection with the March of Dimes is the reason why he is on the American 10 cent piece. According to the US Mint website, in 1946, the Mint placed President Roosevelt on the dime as soon as he died. He was a good choice for the dime because he supported an organization called the March of Dimes. The March of Dimes raised money to find a cure for polio. The Franklin Roosevelt dime went into circulation in January 1946 and continues to this day. Before the Great Depression, most charities raised money by contributions from the wealthy. But during the depths of the Great Depression in the 1930s, the wealthy were not donating a lot of money. The concept behind the March of Dimes was to have a grassroots organization where average people contributed to a nonprofit charity. People were asked to give a dime. To put that into perspective, 10 cents in 1938 would be worth a little over $2 today. This was a brilliant idea. Even though they were in the midst of the worst economic collapse in the history of the U.S., people all over the country contributed. Working class people were putting dimes into collection cans. People would go door to door collecting dimes and would even collect in movie theaters. And a good number of average working class Americans mailed dimes to the White House. The money raised from the March of Dimes funded research for a possible cure or at least a vaccine for polio. One of the people that received grant money from the March of Dimes was a young doctor named Jonas Salk. Yes, it's time to talk about the hero of this story, Jonas Salk. He was born in New York City on October 28, 1914. He was the son of immigrant parents from Russia. 
Salk was Jewish, and this was a handicap when he was applying for medical school. This was a time when people could be openly discriminatory. At the time, a lot of medical schools had strict quotas on how many Jews they would allow in an incoming class. Of course, some of those schools did not allow any blacks into those schools. Discrimination was rampant. Fortunately for Jonas Salk and the world, New York University did not discriminate against Jews for medical school at that time. In 1947, Salk was appointed director of the Virus Research Laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Dr. Salk received funding from the March of Dimes to support his research into a polio vaccine. Since I have no medical background, here's an explanation from the website of the National Center for Biotechnology Information, NCBI, part of the National Institutes of Health, America's Medical Research Agency. NCBI explains, at the time, the established paradigm of vaccine development was to first isolate a live but weakened microorganism. This attenuated virus or bacteria would then be administered to patients in order to create a low-grade innocuous infection that would confer long-standing immunity. Salk and his team used formaldehyde to kill the polio virus without destroying its antigenic properties. Apparently, this was out-of-the-box thinking. Most medical professionals at the time thought that a live vaccine was the way to go, meaning using a live but weakened microorganism of the disease. Salk was able to kill the polio virus so that it would not be dangerous to the people receiving the vaccine. The hard part was to make sure that the dead vaccine still kept its antigenic properties. And of course, you're wondering, what does that mean, antigenic properties? According to the Centers for Disease Control, the term antigenic properties is used to describe the immune response triggered by the antigens on a particular virus. Antigens are molecular structures on the surface of viruses that are recognized by the immune system and are capable of triggering one kind of immune response known as antibody production. In simple English, Dr. Salk was able to kill the polio virus so his vaccine would not harm people, but the vaccine was still able to produce the antibodies in that person to make him or her immune from the polio virus. Once Salk was convinced that he had a safe and effective vaccine, it was time to test it out. To demonstrate to people that it was safe, Salk administered the vaccine to himself, his wife, and his own kids. That was a fantastic way to show the public that you truly believed you have a safe vaccine. Anybody listening to this who has children knows that you might take risks with your own life, but not with your kids. In 1954, there was a large-scale national study with over 1 million pediatric subjects, meaning that they were testing the vaccine on kids since it was mostly children who contracted polio. On April 12, 1955, Dr. Salk announced to the world the results. His vaccine was effective and safe. Subsequent data backed up his claim. In 1955, there were approximately 29,000 cases of polio 
in the US. However, the number of polio cases in the same age group was two to five times greater in that year for unvaccinated kids compared to children who had received the Salk vaccine. And two years later, after the Salk vaccine was widely administered throughout the US, the infection rate plummeted to less than 6,000. And by 1961, there were only 161 polio cases reported in the United States. Unfortunately, there was a temporary problem, a very serious problem. Once the Salk vaccine was approved, six different pharmaceutical companies were producing the vaccine. One of those pharmaceutical companies was Cutter Laboratories in California. Tragically, Cutter Laboratories made horrible mistakes that produced some vaccine with live virus instead of the killed virus. They did not produce the Salk vaccine properly. This resulted in a polio outbreak in Pocatello, Idaho in 1955, which spread to other parts of the Western US. Approximately 250 cases of paralytic polio occurred and several children even died. To be clear, when produced properly, the Salk vaccine was completely safe. In competition with Jonas Salk and his research team, Dr. Albert Sabin headed another research team which developed an attenuated live poliovirus vaccine. That means a vaccine with live poliovirus that has been weakened. The virus is live to cause the human body to develop immunity, but in a weakened state so the virus does not cause actual polio. Sabin's live vaccine came into commercial use in 1961. It quickly replaced the Salk vaccine for two main reasons. Number one, there was some loss of public confidence in the Salk vaccine after the Cutter Laboratories tragedy I described earlier. Number two, the Sabin vaccine could be taken orally as compared to the Salk vaccine, which had to be administered by injection. But eventually, the inactivated, aka killed virus vaccine of Jonas Salk came back into favor and replaced the live attenuated vaccine of Albert Sabin. In the year 2000, the U.S. Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices recommended that children in the U.S. should be immunized with the inactivated, aka killed virus, vaccine developed by Dr. Salk in place of the oral live attenuated polio vaccine developed by Albert Sabin. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the inactivated polio virus vaccine, the kind developed by Jonas Salk, is the only polio vaccine that has been used in the United States since 2000. Dr. Salk was a true American hero. I'm not saying the man was a saint, nobody is, but he, along with his research team, invented a vaccine that essentially eliminated polio as a threat to most of the world. And he did not cash in on it. Dr. Salk turned down movie deals. And most important of all, he did not patent his discovery. I love this exchange when Salk was being interviewed by Edward R. Murrow. If you're unfamiliar with Murrow, he was one of the biggest journalists in the 1940s and 1950s. He was one of the main people that brought down Senator Joseph McCarthy and his persecution of alleged American communists in the 1950s. I did a podcast episode on that entitled McCarthyism, Political Witch Hunts, and the Red Scare. 
Anyway, in that April 12, 1955 interview, Murrow asked Salk who owned the patent on the polio vaccine. Salk's famous reply was, well, the people, I would say. There is no patent. Could you patent the sun? How great is that? Jonas Salk was appreciated throughout the world and received many awards. He was on a U.S. postage stamp issued in 2006. I think one of the coolest accolades occurred in 1997 when the Commonwealth of Dominica issued a postage stamp with Jonas Salk on it. On May 6, 1985, President Ronald Reagan declared Dr. Jonas E. Salk Day. But most of his accolades came in the 1950s. President Dwight Eisenhower held a ceremony at the White House to honor Dr. Salk on April 23, 1955. Just listen to how appreciative Eisenhower was as he gave Dr. Salk the citation. Before I hand you uh, this citation, I should like to say to you that when I think of the countless thousands of American parents and grandparents who are hereafter to be spared the agonizing fears of the annual epidemic of poliomyelitis, when I think of all the agony that these people will be spared as they see loved ones suffering in bed, I must say to you, I have no words in which adequately to express the thanks of myself, all the people I know, and all 164 million Americans to say nothing of all the other people in the world that will profit from your discovery. I am very, very happy to have that today. So where do we stand with polio today? Unfortunately, it has not been completely eradicated like smallpox. However, two of the three known types of polio virus have been thoroughly eradicated, and the wild form of the third type of polio virus is only found in a few countries in Central Asia. But in the Western world, polio is essentially a thing of the past thanks to the vaccines. According to the Mayo Clinic, before the advent of the polio vaccines, in the first half of the 20th century, the U.S. would experience approximately 16,000 cases of polio per year. In the year 2020, there were no reported cases of polio in the United States. The last case of wild polio virus acquired in the U.S. was in 1979. And worldwide, the World Health Organization reported only six cases of polio in 2021. That's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Reviews really help. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, it's easy to do. Scroll down the History Analyze show page, select a rating, hopefully five stars, and then tap Write a Review. If you're listening on Spotify or any other podcast apps which allow ratings, I would appreciate a five-star rating. Please tell your friends, relatives, co-workers. Word of mouth is the best way to increase the audience for History Analyzed. Check out my website, historyanalyzed.com, where you will find links to fun items for all history geeks out there. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.